Fixate on Code, episode 18. All right, Larry Boerter here, and you are listening to Fixate on Code, the weekly bite-sized podcast where I talk to the best devs about their favorite strategies for writing great code. Now, let's chat with today's featured guest, Jeremy Keith. Jeremy, thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Jeremy is the founder of ClearLeft, a passionate group of UX and digital strategists based in the UK, where Jeremy now heads research and development. He is the author of a number of books on web development, including his latest book, Resilient Web Design, has been seen on stages like An Event Apart and South by Southwest, and is also the creator of the world's first science hack day. Jeremy, can you fill in some of the gaps in that intro and tell me a little bit about what you get up to when you're not writing code? Uh, well, filling in the gaps, um, you covered a lot there, um, writing books and speaking at conferences, uh, occasionally even making websites. Um, <laughs> and when I'm not writing code, I like playing music. I, I play in a band uh, here in Brighton called Salter Kane. Uh, I also play traditional Irish music, so I like going out to Irish music sessions, uh, bring my mandolin along, uh, play along with those tunes. Um, I enjoy good food, good wine, good beer. Um, and reading good books. So, <laughs> and, you know, long walks in the moonlight on the beach. <laughs> All right, Jeremy, what are you most passionate about as a developer? As a developer, um, well, I kind of come at, at development as um, a means to an end, and that end being the user experience, or a good user experience. Um, so, clear left. Um, where work, uh, we're very much a design agency and user experience design has always been our focus. So we do front end development, but it's not the thrust of the, of the agency. We're not a development driven company. We're very much a design driven company. So, so in a way, the development is in service to design. And, and I kind of feel that way about development in general, that it's, it's always uh, in service to something. It's a means to an end. So, um, what gets me excited about development is when you can, you know, accomplish something that makes somebody's life easier, better, improves their day, um, and, and keeping focused on that. That it's not about, um, you know, it's not about you. It's not about the developer experience. It's about the user experience. I mean, I want a good developer experience too, but um, never at the expense of the user. Um, so for me, what gets me excited is is uh, development and technologies and ideas that directly have an impact on on the end user experience. You know, I get less excited about stuff that um, makes the developer's life easier. I mean, I'm all for that. I'm all in favor of that. But it doesn't get me as excited as technologies that directly affect the user experience. Mm, and it has been a long road for developers to, I think, start realizing the importance of, of the user. And you're not building a product purely for financial gain. You're, you're building something which should actually be making an impact on, on someone else's life. Yeah, and you know sometimes the, the sometimes the, the the business goals even can come into conflict with the user experience goals. So you've got different competing priorities. You know the developer experience, the the, the designers' goals. You know that might be um, you know ego driven in, in in a good way. You know just like you know getting their reputation out there, designing something they could be proud of. You've got the business goals, which sometimes could be in conflict with the user goals. Like if you're in the advertising business. It's pretty much in direct conflict with with what the user wants, right? No user really wants advertising. So finding a way to balance all these competing goals can be very, very tricky. Um, 
you know, if you if you only cared about the user experience, then you'd have a, an e-commerce shop where everything is free because hey, everyone loves free stuff, right? But that's not viable because you've got to also <laughs> balance with the business goals. So you've got these competing goals. And while I always want to put the user experience at that the top of that list, um, yeah, sometimes you know you have to make compromises and, and try and balance. But I do think, you know, at least in theory, at least in you know, in principle, um, we're there to represent the user. It may maybe even more than represent the business, and that's that's sometimes um, a controversial thing to say. Particularly, you know, I work at an agency. We're in the, we're in the business of client services. Mm. Everything we do should be in service to the client, right? But I feel like there's a step further than being in service to the client, which is being in service to the client's customers. So the end user. It's almost like if you leapfrog over those, maybe you, you end up satisfying both parties. Mm. But yeah, it's always a tricky balancing act of competing priorities. So you guys have been going for for a number of years now. When did Clearlift start? In, in two thousand and five. That's right. Yeah, two thousand five. It was um, three of us. It was me and, and Andy Budd and, and Richard Rudder. Uh, I was freelancing. I'd been freelancing for a few years, and um, Andy was working at an agency. He was a designer, and Richard was working. He was commuting up from Brighton to London. Um, but the three of us, um, we'd been blogging for a few years, and you know, we got to know each other kind of through our blogs. We were all local to Brighton, but it was kind of through our blogs we got to know each other. Um, and we were very much on the, the web standards um, train in the early 2000s, you know, fighting a good fight for CSS and, and standards, <laughs> trying to convince people to stop using tables for layout and try this CSS layout. <laughs> um, uh, so we had a lot in common. And we also had a lot of, you know, I think a lot of uh, reputational um, uh, assets there, you know, that people knew us from our blog. So we sort of realized if the three of us sort of got together and formed a, an agency, A, we could kind of go after the kind of work we wanted to be doing and, and position ourselves the way we wanted to position ourselves. Um, but also we could, we could, you know, leverage, to use that horrible word, the, um, the <laughs> reputation we had from, from our blogs and books as well. You know, we were writing books about web standards. But it was interesting, when, when it, in 2005, you know, we did have the discussion about do we position ourselves as like a web standards company? Because in 2005, maybe that could have still made sense. You know, it would have been, even then, maybe still a point of differentiation. Um, but it was clear that wouldn't be for much longer. It was clear that, of course, you'd be a web standards company. What else would you do? You know, how else would you build websites? Um, you know, that wasn't clear for the longest time. It's like, well, maybe you use Flash, maybe you use web standards. You know, mm. um, but we, we we felt that user experience was something that was um, woefully lacking in in the industry. You know, and uh, well, design in general. I mean, user experience, in, in my opinion, is kind of just another word for design because any any good definition of user experience just ends up being a good definition of design. But I guess the word design has been um, watered down and, and people imagine, oh, Photoshop and moving pixels around when they hear the word design. So having a new phrase like UX um, helps, uh, helps make a fresh start. But we decided pretty, pretty early on that, yeah, that's where we wanted to focus. There were very few other companies focusing there. In America, there was Adaptive Path and they were kind of, you know, um, like foreigners, they were heroes to us. Like we want to be doing what they're doing, but over here in the UK. <laughs> um, so that's how we positioned ourselves right from the start was that um, user experience. And then, yes, we would do design, we do development, but always in service to user experience. Um, what's interesting is that you know over the years that differentiator is you know basically gone away because everybody is a UX designer these days, and every company is a UX company. Yeah. Um, so. You know, I, th- I think it gets harder to to sell the idea of an external UX agency to a company when that company has gone and hired a whole UX department because they've been convinced now that design mm-hmm. is important and design does deserve a seat at the table. Um, so what we offer now is more like, here's our experience and we can help your company and we can come in and 
you know, you have inexperienced UX designers. We've got experienced UX designers. Let's put them together and um, and figure out a way of, you know, um, you get the most out of us and that, you know, after a while you won't need us anymore and then we'll have done our job. And there's various different ways of doing that. You know, it's like on the short term, it could be design sprints. Uh, longer term, you know, we can embed within the company and, you know, work on a project together, uh, even help companies hire potentially. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of a transition we've gone through or still going through, moving to. Um, it's interesting times. How has the experience with design sprints worked out with you guys and devs? I know it's been pushed a lot recently by Google, I think made, made a lot more um, public thanks to Google's interest in, in advocating design sprints. How has it worked for you? How has it changed your perception of working with developers and designers together in a collaborative environment? We've had very, very good experiences with design sprints. Um, I don't think they're a silver bullet. I think it's really important that you use design sprints for the right kind of problem. Um, otherwise, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna be bad for everyone. But it, it's it's a really nice way. You know, when companies are, you know, everyone in a company is super busy, and you're trying to, you're not gonna be able to get much time from them to step away and and you know um, work with you on something new when business as usual is taking up all their headspace. So the idea of having a really constrained period of time, like five days, you're going to block out that and you're going to get people fully committed to those five days to work on a single defined problem um, where production code probably isn't going to be the end result. Maybe a prototype might be the end result. Mm -hmm. It's more to validate an idea or test a hypothesis. It's actually really, when it works, is really, uh, really valuable. Um, and yeah, the Google um, guys, well, friends of ours at Google, like Jake Knapp and, and Daniel Burke, have, have been singing the praises of design sprints. And um, we pretty much use their model, the five day model. Oh, we can we fudge it sometimes. Like something we're doing with a, a company we work with is we've got this kind of regular thing where every couple of months they're super busy with business as usual. They don't have time to start a new, you know, fresh project. But we'll do one week of research followed by a design sprint. So we do the research to figure out where the pain points are. And it's usually pretty low-hanging fruit, like, oh man, you, you're clearly losing money in this step in the checkout process. Okay, next week we're going to have a design sprint on the checkout process, on fixing that problem. And that's, that's a nice sort of model. And then they get a lot of value out of that, right? So they're from, from just two weeks, one week of research, one week of a sprint, they get a direct um, benefit to their bottom line, right? They end up saving more money than they've spent on, on, on the design sprint or the research. And then come back in another three, four months and let's do it again. Let's try something else. Um, so it works for those, it works for those smaller, well-defined sort of projects. Um, and I like the intensity of it. I like that it's, it's intense. You know, you've got five days, everyone gets stuck in. It doesn't matter what your job is, you're sketching, right? You're going to be sketching on day three. Mm. Um, if you're, if you're coding something, it's got to be quick. It's got to be prototypey. It's like you, you kind of throw all your best practices out the window and just like yeah. get something into a browser so you can test it by Friday. You know, um, I like that intensity as long as it's followed by a break, right? You can't have people do design sprints back to back. Um, you can't have like weeks of design sprint. It just doesn't work. It's, it's called sprint for a reason, right? Um, but yeah, on the whole, I gotta say, um, I've been impressed. I think it's, I think it's good for the right kind of problems. It's really, really good. And yeah, it does bring a different, regarding your question about what, you know, coding and uh, how it changes your, your mindset. Um, yeah, you, you have to get, kind of get into that prototype mindset. So at, at Clear Left, we've, I almost see like we've got sometimes two different mindsets with, when it comes to development. Either we're delivering some production code, usually front end code, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And that might be in the form of a pattern library style guide um, that we're handing mm -hmm. over to the back-end developers of a company to implement. 
And there, you, you know, that code has got to be top-notch. It's got to be accessible. It's got to be performant. It's production-ready. It's tested. And that's one mindset, right? This, this mindset of quality. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes, because as I said, development is in service to design, the developer's there to kind of um, realize a design idea. So a designer has an idea for something, and maybe the medium of Sketch or Photoshop or paper isn't enough fidelity. It needs to be in a browser. It needs to be something that you can really like, see in a browser. Right, let's prototype something quickly in code, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Mm. So the materials are the same. The mindset is completely different. Like if you find yourself thinking like, oh, this isn't a, this isn't the perfect semantic element for this. Like, no, no, you're in the wrong mindset. You're in the you're in the quality mindset. And you need to be in the fast, fast mindset. You know, in in, in the production yeah. mindset, I'm very wary of you know using libraries or using any code from somebody else. Like, mm, is it worth the you know the download price that the user's got to pay for that? As soon as you're into prototype, it's like, yep, doesn't matter. Throw them all in. Throw in all the libraries. You know, as long as I yeah. can get this made quickly, that's all that matters. Done is better than perfect. Exactly. Done is better than perfect when it comes to the prototype. The danger is, and we did this early on and it was a really bad idea, is when you've, you've built a prototype, it's like, yeah, this looks great. seems to be working. All right, well, now let's evolve that into the finished product. No. Prototypes are there <laughs> to be thrown away. And you don't, don't get attached to your prototypes. Once you've decided, yes, it solves the problem, it answered our question, great, throw it away and now build it real. Like build it with real technologies, with quality in mind, in that other mindset, you know? Yeah. All right. So you guys have been around since 2005. You've, you've been blogging before that. <laughs> you've run into your, your fair share of problems already with implementing prototypes when they should have been discarded. Can you take me to the worst experience you've ever had on a project? So I don't know if this is the worst experience, but I think, I think it's um, uh, maybe a good, a good one to, to talk about because it's maybe kind of a, a teachable moment. But uh, we're working with a project, a big, big publisher, uh, educational publisher. And they've got you know global markets. They 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 do stuff everywhere. And this project was going to roll out initially. Um, South Africa actually was one of the markets, but India as well. And and we thought, okay, this is really interesting. So we began with research about what the users. This would be teachers and students. What what they'd be using to access the web. You know what kind of devices, what kind of browsers. Um, and I'm 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 loving this. It's like oh yeah, they're using like UC browser and, and Opera Mini and these kind of, you know proxy browsers and, yeah. and the hardware isn't great. It's like, okay, this is good. We've got some constraints. And we came up with a performance budget based on that. You know, so it's, you know, performance budgets are kind of sticking a finger in the air, but I think they make a good starting point. And we were agreed on this. We had personas, you know, that we had on the walls sort of thing, like we're building this for, for, for her. This is the person we're building for. And it was great. And, and the designer working on the project was totally on board with the performance budget. He understood, you know, he wanted to have all these different fonts, but like, think of the performance budget. And he's like, you're right, you're right. I'm going to cut it back. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to really trim it down and, and be more effective with what I've got. So this was all going great. And, but at ClearLeft, we, like I said, we, we could provide deliverables in the form of front-end code, but we very, very rarely implement on the back-end, right? We're normally working with a client who has their own mm. internal team for that. So we were going to be handing over to their devs who would implement this. It was a development team uh, in India. So we were on a call with them. I can't remember what we're talking about, but I wanted to get the load on, on the technical, you know, how they were planning to do it. And they mentioned that they were going to build the whole thing in React. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, it seemed odd for the, the kind of audience, the kind of markets we're talking about. But I thought, that's okay, because I mean, as long as we server-side render this, um, for, you know, at least for that initial thing, the, the performance budget could survive intact. Yeah. But no, they had a way of working and 
They weren't willing to change it. Everything they ever did was React rendered in the browser. Mm-hmm. And that's perfectly reasonable for many kinds of projects. But for this, given the audience and the market, I really didn't think it made sense. But um, there was no change in their mind. And, and we were kind of gutted. It was like all this um, work we'd done up front around the performance budgets. And, and it was kind of our motivation. You know, These were the principles we were working towards. Yeah. Suddenly were dashed because of a technical decision that was kind of out, our, out of our control. Um, yeah, that was, that was a real rough experience. You know, we felt, we all, the whole team felt like, ah, oh, this is, this is such a shame. What was, what was the biggest takeaway that you guys took from going through that? Well, first of all, you know, check your assumptions at the door. Um, <laughs> when it comes to technical decisions like that, uh, understanding the, the knock on effects that a technical decision that was maybe made three years ago by some company could have a, an effect on the, on the project you're doing now, right? That's an important effect. Mm. Um, we should have found out sooner. That, that was a big takeaway. Also, if I'm being honest, maybe from that point on, we were solving the wrong problem because the real problem there was the wrong technology for the job at hand. I'm not saying React's a bad technology. I'm saying it wasn't right for this particular project. And mm. if I'm being honest, what we should have then set out to do was to try and change that, um, which would have meant trying to convince those devs trying to convince the company to uh, invest in, in building in a different way, um, obviously that would have been very, very, very difficult, maybe impossible, and mm. we didn't even try. Um, maybe we should have tried. Maybe we should have really tried to solve the real problem. I think in, in development this happens a lot, where people end up pouring a lot of time and energy into um, technical things, like I'm, I'm, I'm writing code, I'm, I'm building an interface, and actually if you, if you dig down, there's a, a more underlying problem, but the way you solve that problem isn't by writing code, it's by trying to talk to people and convince people and win them over to changing their minds and trying something different. But that's so much harder than writing code, right? Computers easy, humans hard. (laughs) Humans unpredictable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, all right. Now, Jeremy, in terms of getting quality work done on a daily basis, which method or tool do you use that you'd hate to be without? Um, on a daily basis, uh, you're asking the wrong person for <laughs> advice on this kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm just terrible. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an awful procrastinator. Um, I find it really hard to focus. Um, all the usual productivity things are around, you know, getting things done and focus and, and flow. And I'm just awful at all that stuff. <laughs> and what, what I've tried to do is is try and turn that into something positive in a way. So um, I'm going to be honest, I'll spend a fair amount of my time goofing off on the internet, you know, clicking links, investigating stuff, reading stuff. Um, but I will link to that stuff, right? I've got a link section on my blog, or maybe sometimes it sparks a blog post and I, I, mm. I you know, blurt out what I'm thinking in a, in a blog post quickly. Um, and all of this is procrastination. Now, I should probably be doing something else while I'm, you know, linking to this thing or writing that blog post. <laughs> but when you do it enough, um, it starts to become a resource in itself. You know, and I tag this stuff on my website too, so now I can recall it fairly quickly. I just have to think, oh, what would past me have tagged that thing with? So it does <laughs> end up being a benefit because you know, I'll be in a meeting, something completely unrelated, and somebody mentions something, go, hang on, that reminds me of something I linked to like six months ago. Let me pull it up here. Mm-hmm. And something valuable comes out of that procrastination. Um, so I've, I've tried to turn this... Um, yeah, lack of focus into 
into just owning it. It's like, this is what I do. I, I surf around the place. I link to things. <laughs> I, I, I write down my thoughts when they pop into my head. And that's just what I do. In terms of, you know, the day-to-day productivity stuff around, yeah, I guess email is the big one, Slack and all that stuff. Um, I, I think I have a kind of an inbox zero where I try and keep, I, I just archive emails all the time, try to respond to things quickly. <laughs> but um, I think it's more, I probably have an inbox zero because most people know not to email me um, rather, rather than any particular productivity. <laughs> um, yeah, I I'm, I'm just do not have any good productivity tips other than try and find a, ter- a way to turn that <laughs> procrastination into something positive. Actually, Jessica Hish has this term, uh, procrastinating. Which is where, you know, you're doing something, but you should be doing something else, be doing this other thing. But this other thing you're doing is actually also good. I've, I've sort of sometimes tricked myself into getting stuff done by having two things I need to get done. And I'm like, oh, I really don't feel like doing this thing. Oh, I know. I'll do this other thing. And I've kind of hacked myself to, <laughs> to get the other thing done. So I'm still doing work. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Procrastinating. working. <laughs> Now, where in your daily work do you still get frustrated? What's where? Where do you feel there's room for things to be done in a more effective way? Well, well, this is interesting because when it comes to effectiveness, you know, productivity, I guess, efficiency. Most people look to well, we need we need better tools, right? We need there's inefficiency here. Let's build a tool to reduce the inefficiency. But if I'm being honest, um, the thing I probably get frustrated about most is just too many tools. Um, <laughs> sometimes. You could just do something. You open up a text editor and save some HTML and some CSS, and it, it works. And just like you're done. But no, we have to, you know, set up our build chain, and we have to npm and and webpack and grunt and gulp and unicorn and whatever the stuff is. And it's just like, yeah, I, I really, I only wanted to make a a web page here. You know, this feels like too much. So I actually get kind of frustrated by the um, the amount of tooling involved. That said, you know, nobody's forcing me to to use any of these tools. I don't. Don't have to use them. Um, I, maybe I get frustrated by the um, pervasive impression that you do need to do this stuff, right? Like mm. front end development means you know npm and, and webpack and, and all this this tooling and the stuff. Where actually the tools are great, but they are just tools, right? Tools are there to help you work faster. And if you find yourself spending more time on the tools than in actually doing the work, then it's not really a tool, is it? Right. Mm. Um, so I. I I, I try to not to get too attached to tools, knowing that you know I'm probably going to have to change it next year anyway, right? We're going to be using something completely new. Yep. Um, I, I saw this talk by Anna Shipman. She was talking about um, provisioning servers and how you should really think of your servers as being like cattle, not pets, which I thought was a really nice way so you don't get too attached. <laughs> and I think that's a good way to think about tools in general. It's like they're cattle, not pets, right? So don't get too attached to them. Yeah. So I don't... I try not to have any particular tool where I think, oh, I couldn't live without this tool, right? Because I'm trying to treat mm-hmm. them like cattle, not pets. So in terms of new projects, libraries, and frameworks, and you're saying the tooling is so transient in our world as it is, what are you most excited about at the moment? Yeah, so because I have this kind of mindset of don't, don't get too attached to this stuff, um, I don't tend to get as excited by things like frameworks or libraries. Um, I, I saw a talk by my friend Frank Camero recently where he was talking about, you know, working on the web for 20 years. And he said, you know, it doesn't really feel like 20 years. It feels like five years done four times. <laughs> every five years, like, there's a whole new way of doing things. Throw out everything you know. Here's a, and to a certain extent, that's true. Like, again, you know, cattle, not pets. Don't get too attached to your, your framework, your library, because you know you're just going to have to change it in the future. Um, 
And that's good. If you go in with that mindset, like this is for now and it's not forever, that's a good attitude. Um, but there are certain things that are persistent and it's really interesting to spot those things. And they tend not to be technologies. They tend to be more um, principles or ideas or approaches. Um, mm. You know, and after a long enough time, after the 20 years, you know, yeah, I've done five years, four times, but I've also done 20 years of some stuff like um, ideas around how you architect things or how you um, approach building on the web. Um, you know, progressive enhancement is one that I'm convinced by now because it just keeps coming up over and over again, even despite all the changes in tooling and all the changes in approaches, it's something that's been persistent. So that, that I kind of doubled down on, um, you know, certain things, certain ideas and principles survive. As for what gets me excited, it tends not to be, as I said, frameworks or, or libraries, um, but more the stuff that, that lands in browsers. Because when stuff lands in browsers, it's there for good, right? I mean, it's pretty much, mm. it's a good long-term bet. It's very hard to remove things from browsers. Um, also, the reason I, I get more excited about standards and things landing in web browsers is because, as I said at the start, I get more excited about um, things that are of a direct benefit to the user experience. And a framework and a library, that's usually of benefit to the developer. And you could argue, you know, anything that benefits the developer automatically benefits the user because the developer is working better and faster. And that's true. But if you're talking about stuff that directly impacts the user experience, it's more likely to be something that, that's arrived in a browser, right? So, you know, geolocation comes along. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, that, that's something that can directly change the experience the user is having. So right now, for example, say what I'm really excited about is service workers. And mm. service workers is an example where actually as a developer, it's, it's a, I have to take a hit, right? I have to learn this stuff now. Um, I've got to devote some time and get my head around service workers, which are kind of weird to get your head around. And I have to learn what the code to write. You know, it's, it's kind of the opposite of a framework or a library because they always promise you, you, you'll have to do less. Like, we're going to take away some of your work. We're going to do work for you. With new stuff that lands in a browser, it's like, okay, you got something new to learn. You're going to have to devote some time to this, but it'll benefit the end user. Like there's a direct benefit to the user experience with something like service workers, you know, faster websites and websites that work offline. That excites me. That, that really excites me. So with all the new specs coming out, I mean, service worker seems to be one of the ones making the, making the most noise over the past two years. How do you decide on what you want to learn and where do you make time to learn new things? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I feel like this, and I've been asking this of myself a lot lately. I'm, I'm coming up with a new conference talk this year, and, and a lot of it is is that exactly that question. You know, how do you decide? It is, you're constantly being bombarded with you know, oh, this new tool, this new framework, this new spec, right? This new uh, standard. How do you decide? In some <laughs> ways, I feel like it's it's got to be a sort of personal thing. Like you know, um, if something really resonates with you, just you go for it. You really like SVG? Double down on SVG. There's a world of stuff to learn. You know. Even within CSS, there'll be specific silos almost, you know, like, oh, I'm really into the font stuff in CSS. You could become the expert in font stuff in CSS and, and you know, never mind all the other stuff in CSS, the layout stuff. You could become the layout person for CSS. So <laughs> on the one hand, I feel like, you know, f follow your heart in a way, you know, go for what, what really resonates with you. I, I, I say that as, um, as opposed to just following what you feel you should do, right? So if you're to read the, the websites and the blogs, you might think, oh, I must learn this framework. I must learn this spec um, or I won't have a job. Um, I don't think that's a good enough reason. Um, there are some things where it's like, yeah, there's a tidal wave and mm -hmm. you're just going to have to surf it. But um, if you're only learning something because you feel you should, uh, but it doesn't resonate with you, um, 
I think in the long term that'll be uh, that'll be tricky. Mm-hmm. It's like we all have our own uh, philosophies, our own principles of how we work. Like I was talking about the user centered one, and and you got to find the things that match that philosophy that amplify what works for you. Other people get really turned on by you know making the developer's life easier, and that's great. And they get really into making the tools that will help people work faster, and I love that. And it's really important that we have people with different priorities, right? With people who are into different things. So I'm kind of um, dodging the question, but I sort of feel like it's got to be a personal uh, question with a personal answer. But I'd say the first step is figuring out yourself, understanding what motivates you, what you get excited by, what, you, what you're trying to do when you build on the web, and then find the technologies or the tools or the standards and specs that, that um, amplify that. So which specific aspect about programming has dramatically changed the way that you think about and write code? I think I would, I would have to talk about it specifically in relation to the web. I, I mean, my experience is, is entirely limited to the web. So I can't really talk about computer science. I don't really, I never studied computer science. I can't really talk about programming in a more abstract, general way. You know, I did a bit of basic when I was a kid, but that's about it. Um, my heart has always been for the web. So when I think about programming or coding or building, it's always to do with uh, the web. So the things that have stuck with me um, are things that are sort of specific to the web. And I would say one of those things is the idea of the separation of concerns, right? Um, I mean, once upon a time, that was the idea of you know structure, presentation, and, and yeah. behavior, you know, HTML, CSS, JavaScript. These days, that might be more about modularity, more about separating um, you know, pieces of an interface. But this idea of the separation of concerns, that, that principle is, is, is one that's, that stuck with me. And also, I mentioned progressive enhancement earlier. It's a phrase that a lot of people don't like because I think a lot of people misunderstand it. And, and um, I'm, I'm fine with that. I don't care what we call it. But it's more about this mindset of, of realizing that the, the web, and this comes down to the separation of concerns, on the web, you don't necessarily have an interface. Right? You don't necessarily have a thing that's going to be experienced the same by everybody. Uh, in other software development, you do. In native development, you know, your native apps are going to be experienced pretty much the same on, on every phone. But on the web, you know, such a variety of, of operating systems and browsers and screen sizes and, and all the stuff that you, you have to have a more fluid, flexible approach. And you can't think about the interface, like this pixel perfect interface. And when you take that mindset and you apply it to also not just presentation, but behavior as well, I think it could be really valuable where instead of just seeing an interface in terms of its surface, um, oh, this is an element that has a drop down mm-hmm. of items. So if you click here, it reveals a list of options. It's like, no, but what's the actual purpose of the thing? Oh, it's, this is allowing the user to select one item from a list of options. Okay, now what's the simplest way I could do that? Well, maybe a select with a bunch of options, great. Okay, but don't stop there. You know, now layer on and layer on. And as mm. you know, browsers get more capable, don't leave the older browsers behind. So you know, building something that works and then layering and layering. To me, that's, that's what progressive enhancement is. Mm. And... That's probably that that mindset has probably had the biggest effect on how I think about building for the web. My biggest takeaways from resilient web design as well was was with progressive enhancements, how not only are you thinking about the simplest use case, but it just ends up that you're making something accessible to people who are pretty much neglected in I don't know what the percentage is, but I imagine the vast majority of websites and applications around the world. I know accessibility is becoming a bigger topic at the moment, unfortunately, only now. I still think I think a lot of people struggle with accessibility and they think it's an additional cost. But if people are embracing something like progressive enhancement, then 
not only are you sitting with a baseline for devices which may not support the new sort of magic that we're getting, but you're also supporting users who are generally neglected. What, what is the impact of all these single-page applications on users with disabilities? Do you guys have any experience with that? Well, it depends, you know, which disabilities you're talking about. Um, you're, you're absolutely right that, it, that you know there are two sides of the same coin here. I think with progressive enhancement, you kind of get a form of accessibility, uh, maybe just like small a accessibility. In that, you know, because you're thinking about starting with the lowest common denominator, what's the simplest technology to accomplish what the user needs to do? You're, you're kind of also saying what's the most accessible technology, accessible in the sense of universal. Um, what most browsers out there, most lowest common denominator technology. And then the trick is as you layer on that stuff on top is to not mess mm-hmm. it up. So you've started with something that's accessible. Let's say it is a select element with some options. Um, you could add on a whole bunch of JavaScript, mm-hmm. but in doing so now you've, you've, you've thrown out the accessibility that you already had by default. And so the trick now becomes, okay, how do I, uh, you know, instead of thinking about um, making a website accessible, you, you change your mindset to, oh, I'm keeping a website accessible. As I layer on this stuff, how do I keep it accessible? Mm-hmm. Um, as regards technical things like uh, architectural decisions, like a single-page app versus, say, server-rendered, um, if we're talking about screen readers, then actually, no, there isn't that much of uh, a difference. It, it depends on the kind of components you're, you're, you're writing in your JavaScript. Whether you're doing it in a single-page app, you still have to, when you add on the JavaScript, consider you know, focus for the keyboard, because um, that's really important for screen readers. You still have to consider exposing the right um, semantic structure, whether that's through HTML elements or ARIA attributes, because uh, that gets you know sent up the tree mm-hmm. to the to the screen reader. So no, when it comes to let's say screen reader accessibility, I don't think there is uh, you know one one architectural approach is better than another. However, when it comes to other considerations like the performance, then then there are, and you could see there being a knock on effect. So um, you know a page that takes ages to load because the entire app has to download and render and the client side, you know, it's a single page app. Mm. That's a frustrating experience at the best of times. If you have, you know, even a decent connection and decent hardware, as soon as you start to add in, you know, the edge cases of connectivity, but also assistive technology, that pause while you're just waiting for something to be announced is kind of even worse to handle um, when you don't even have a screen to look at with a, with a loading indicator. Um, so no, while it, there isn't, uh, you know, I'd say direct knock-on accessible. If we're talking about, you know. Here we're specifically talking about screen readers because that's sort of the most common way we talk about accessibility. Then no, the, your architectural decisions, you know, one isn't better than the other. There are knock-on effects like um, the accessibility, the small a accessibility. Like, well, if this document requires a, a user agent that can run modern JavaScript in order just to get the text on the screen, then you're shutting off, you know, other kinds of maybe non-human users, search bots perhaps, or you know, aggregators and things like that. And that's a form of accessibility in itself, right? Mm. Um, a lot of people don't think about You know, I do think it's fair enough that people can't possibly consider all the use cases or all the possible uh, combinations of users out there using all these kinds of assistive technologies, all these weird browsers you haven't thought of, um, computers you, you wouldn't expect, uh, mobile devices. Mm. I think, if, you know, if developers had to consider all of those situations, we'd go mad. It's, it's, it's just too much. That's why I think the... In the progressive enhancement approach, you don't actually think about the end user per se, weirdly, even though it's, it results in what I think is the best user experience. You don't <laughs> consider any particular user. You're just considering the technology. You're just considering, well, what's the simplest technology here? And there, there's a hypothesis there, I guess, that the simplest technology is probably going to be the most widely accessible technology. Mm. So start from there, and as you layer on, don't mess it up. 
And with that, we've come to the end of our first segment. Jeremy, I'm about to throw some quick fire questions your way. Let's do this. What is the best advice about programming that you have ever received? So I've been thinking about this and I, I, I can't recall any you know, words of wisdom on programming, but I, I actually spend a lot of my time these days writing words as much as code or even more than code. So I, I have been given good advice on writing words. Maybe, maybe it'll apply to code as well. So um, the classic thing is this idea of, um, you know, I think it was Hemingway said, write drunk, edit sober. And it was like just, or in Anne Lamott in her book, Bird by Bird, talks about this idea of the shitty first draft. Like, just get it all out of your head first, then go back, edit it. And I think this is such good advice. The problem is, I can't do it. I keep trying, but I could tell myself, okay, just, just get anything down. Don't worry about whether it makes sense and go back later and edit it. Because what you don't want to be doing is writing and editing at the same time. But as soon as I go to write something, I almost like, okay, I'm just, I'm just getting this out. And then I'll write one sentence, go, no, that's not, that's not quite right. <laughs> and I start editing, like, oh, what am I doing? I'm writing and editing at the same time. So uh, that's great advice that I wish I would take. <laughs> Which personal habits do you attribute to writing better code? Um, I'm not sure I do write the best code. So again, I'm not the, not the right person to be asking here. Personal habits. Uh, I, 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 I'm a bit of a stickler when it comes to um, I guess you'd call it quality when it comes to anything again that the user is going to be presented with. You know, when it comes to something that's going to directly impact the user experience. So I do, I do stop and consider. You know, the right HTML element is this the right CSS? Is, is this the least amount of JavaScript that could be sending down? Um, on the other hand, that's not very efficient and it doesn't scale very well. So I'm not sure it's. Um, it certainly doesn't make me very productive. I'm really, really, really slow, and uh, that's why. I, tend not to write much client code these days. The, the other developers are cleared after so much better and faster doing that. It would be really bad use of my time. So I'm not sure I have any um, personal habits about writing code. Um, as regards writing, though, in terms of, you know, I, talk, I spend a lot of my time writing words these days, I find I consume, I read so much more than I write. I know you, a lot of people are doing their New Year's resolutions, and one of the ones that's going around is, you know, produce more than you consume, right? And that's great advice in general if, you, if you're thinking of consume as being like, you know, sit in front of the TV watching some rubbish. But actually, there's, um, there's the kind of consumption where you're feeding your brain, right? You're like feeding yourself so that you can then output better stuff. So I would say my, my proportion of consumption to production, and this would be probably true of code and words, is maybe 10 to 1, right? So in a given day, I'm probably going to read, you know, 10 things and write one thing. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably good if you only ever wrote and never looked around and, and sampled and, and checked out what other people are doing and get, expose yourself to other ideas, other ways of doing things. Um, I'm not sure that's too healthy, right, to be working in isolation. So weirdly, I'm, I'm going to turn the New Year's uh, resolution advice on its head and say, um, consume <laughs> more than you produce. If you could recommend one book to join Resilient Web Design, what would it be and why? Oh my goodness. Um, this... This is hard. Um, books, books are tricky when it comes to you know, web technologies, because well, any technologies, because it's a fast-paced industry, so things age quite, quite quickly, and it's mm. hard to find something that, um, that has longevity. And that's fine. I think that's, 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 that's a benefit in many ways. I mean, lots of the book of parts are, are, are terrific. They're all terrific, really. I'd recommend them. But to be honest, I don't really read um, 
I don't really read that many technology books or you know web technology books. Um, I try to have a mixed diet of fiction and nonfiction. Um, I know some people only read nonfiction, and it's good in many ways. But I, th- I think what you what you don't get is empathy. Fiction gives you a kind of empathy mm. that you don't get from nonfiction. So I've been trying to have a very balanced diet. Um, mm. For 2017, I was trying to balance my fiction and nonfiction input by uh, never reading two fiction books back to back and never reading two nonfiction books back to back. But if I had to, you know, recommend one book from all these years of reading, I'm not sure I could do it. Um, I'm, I may have to pass on that one because my answer would change probably every week. <laughs> I will say this, that if books aren't necessarily the right medium for, you know, the web, because, you know, it's, it's a fast paced changing thing, mm. things on the web are maybe more evergreen in a, in a strange way. So I would say, here's, and this is easier because now you, you just have to read an article instead of a book, but there's an article um, that was published, gosh, uh, maybe 15 years ago now, longer? Yeah, way longer than that. Um, on a list apart, many years ago, it's called A Dow of Web Design by John Alsop. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of amazing how relevant it still is today. I mean, there's a few technical details on there that you can kind of ignore because they're about you know web design in the early 2000s. But the ideas in there are uh, still relevant. So I'm going to recommend A Dow of Web Design by John Alsop. Wow, 15 years in, in web development. That's, I don't know how many generations that, that must be. It's probably older than that, actually. Maybe, I don't know, it's, it's old. It's old, but it's great. Jeremy, who in the front-end world is doing work that's really inspiring? So, well, there's so many people. It's gonna, I, I, would, I would surely neglect... Um, if I try to reel them off, but you've had quite a few very inspiring people as uh, guests on your show already. I mean, people like Harry Roberts and um, Sarah Swaydan, and um, yeah, I think what what a lot of these people have in common is that they're yeah they're doing great work, but maybe more importantly, they're sharing it, mm. and and also not just sharing the great work, but you know, often sharing the frustrations or sharing the things that go wrong and sharing the lessons learned. That can be that can be just as uh, as valuable. So there's a whole bunch of people out there who are just making amazing stuff. I mean, I do feel very inferior a lot of the time when I see the amazing <laughs> stuff that people are building. You know, you look see what Sarah Drasner has done this week, or uh, Val Head, or Jen Simmons and Rachel Andrew, and you're just like, oh, I I suck. Like, <laughs> but it, it again with with all those people, it's not it's not even so much about the work; it's about the fact that they're sharing it. Mm. That's just so webby to me. You know, that just feels like it's part of the spirit of the web. It's not just that you do something, but you do something. You share. You hey, I, I made this thing, and uh, here's how I made it. And yeah, go for it. You know, um, mm. here's how I did it. You should you should make it too. Uh, I just love that. And it's, it's been that way from the start. You know, I first came on the web in the late 90s and it was amazing. All these people are just sharing stuff for free. You know, oh, you want to build a web page? Here's how you build a web page. I'm going to share my advice with you for free. I was like, this is wonderful. And I've always kind of wanted to pay it back. You know, if I, if I figure something out, I think, oh, I must share this. You know, not because I want to think, oh, people will think I'm so clever. But no, it's like, maybe there's somebody out there who could benefit from this. So I'll just quickly jot this down. Um, and, and people who do that, Basically, I'm talking about people who blog, right? I just think it's great when people blog and share, and and they build up this corpus on their own website. Um, so those 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 kind of people, the people who who create great stuff and share, more importantly, are great. But I will I have to mention some personal um, heroes of mine who really inspire me. Um, and that's uh, here locally in Brighton. There's a Code Bar meetup, which is um, this great event for teaching people who are underrepresented in technology um, how to get started. You know, with um, HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Um, so you're getting these people com- completely outside the web world, just getting started with this stuff. And, and that's run by 
let's see, there's, there's Alice and there's uh, Zara and uh, Amber and Cassie. And uh, they're heroes of mine. And before them, there was uh, Dot uh, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the people who, Rosa, these, these people who put so much effort into that. I mean, that's, that's where you really are changing the web for the better by bringing in more outside vo- voices, by bringing in a, a more diverse range of people building on the web. Um, yeah, my hat is off to everyone who's, who's working towards that goal. Jeremy, let's reverse things a little bit over here. Imagine you wake up and you have no recollection of ever having written code. With your knowledge of the tools, books, and courses available today, how would you go about learning to program from scratch? So it's interesting because I can think back to when I was in this situation, right? Where I, I did have to learn to, you know, make a web page from scratch. Um, and people were all back then publishing, you know, guides. Zeldman had like Ask Dr. Web. And Eric Meyer had a mailing list for CSS and Steve Champion had this one called Web Design L. So back in the day, it would have been mailing lists and um, personal websites, which is great. But today, there's actually, you know, there's so much. It's, it's kind of wonderful in the sense that um, we've got things like CodePen, right? You can, mm. you can see something and you can, you can copy it and play with it. Now we've got Glitch, right? That does the same kind of thing, but even on a, on a bigger scale. Um, and then you got things like GitHub, you know, relatively easy to get started. And then this idea of, of forking, right, of, of copying something and changing it and adjusting it. They're very, very powerful ideas. Um, that said, I do think maybe there could be more resources for the beginner. There's lots of great, great resources out there for working, you know, professional web developers. You've got Smashing Magazine, you've got CSS Tricks, you've got List Apart, um, the books, like a book apart. But, you know, for the real beginner, there are a few good books out there for sure. Um, John Duckett has some great books, some Shay Howe. Um, and then there's some free online books on getting started with HTML and CSS. But I think you'd be in a pretty good situation as a beginner table, all those tools. And like I said, something like CodeBar, if you're coming to it completely, you know, cold, you've never done anything like this, being in the same physical space as somebody sitting down with someone who's going to show you this stuff, it's going to help you, it's going to answer your questions. That's so, so valuable. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, CodeBar, CodePen, GitHub, Glitch, so many good things. The only thing I'd be worried about is if you're starting from scratch today is like, um, you'd run away screaming because you'd be overwhelmed by just the sheer amount of jargon involved. You like, you think it's HTML, CSS, and JavaScript is is what you need to do, but oh no, there's this Angular and there's React and there's you know NPM and there's there's all this like, and it's just overwhelming. I mean, it's overwhelming for professionals. Imagine what it's like for someone coming in fresh. Yeah. At the same time, though, you you can do so little and get so much effect these days because of what's landed in browsers, you know, what you can do with just HTML and just HTML and CSS is so much more than you could have done 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So there's this weird dichotomy between, you know, there's this overwhelming landscape of technologies and yet you need fewer technologies than ever to accomplish more than you could do in the past. Yeah. <laughs> now, Jeremy, let's wrap up with your top tip on how to work smart and the best way for us to connect with you. Uh, uh, top tip for how to work smart. Um, share what you know. Um, that, that was the original motto of the World Wide Web was let's share what we know. So uh, you want to work smart, um, have a website where you jot things down. Whether that's code, whether that's words, whether it's graphics, whatever. Just sh- share what you know. Just uh, publish, share. That's, that's my advice. Uh, and in that vein, if people want to get in touch with me, know more about me, my website is the place to go. It's adactio.com, A-D-A-C-T-I-O. Um, I write in a journal there, you know, old-fashioned blog. I've got a link section, and there's a lot of um, front-end development links in there, but other stuff too I'm interested in. Yeah, you can you can 
find me there. I've got my own kind of notes instead of Twitter. I've got my own section of my website where I post little updates and pictures of what I'm eating. And um, I syndicate those to Twitter and I syndicate my blog posts to Medium. But um, <laughs> my website is the canonical home for everything I publish on the web. <laughs> To everyone out there, you've been hanging with Jeremy Keith and Larry Buerta. Head over to fixate.it where you'll find links and timestamps for everything we've been chatting about today. And of course, head over to resilientwebdesign.com to find out how you can build websites that stand the test of time. And Jeremy, thank you for sharing your journey with Fixate on Code. Keep pushing the limits and keep pushing great code. Thank you very much, Larry. 